Stuart, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's lovely to see you, William, and lovely to see you, Karen. Thank you for hosting me. Yeah, no, no problem. Well, um, um, the, the, I suppose the first thing to say is um, who you are, Stuart. Um, Stuart was born and brought up in Edinburgh. Where about, Stuart? Where were you born in Edinburgh? Uh, just uh, in Gilmerton. Okay, okay, cool. Um, he's executive director of G30, which is the leading international central bank think tank, whose members include Mark Kearney, uh, Janet Yellen, and Mervyn King. And drawing on decades of experience in central banking and his community's examples of successful central banking and currency management, he wrote this paper in a purely personal capacity to address and plan for the institutional and currency joining ahead of Scotland's independence. The paper, you know, when I picked up it, the paper says we have the goal of illuminating the architectural elements needed when Scotland and the Scottish people create their own central bank and the various phases that will be part of the transition to a Scottish pound. What I really liked about that was the word when and not if that you had in that, state, that statement. Um, to get going, I'd really like to get an overview of the paper. I mean, it's a relatively short paper. I think it's 40 pages, but I'm sure a lot of the audience won't have uh, read it. So would you like to have a stab at that and just really tell us roughly, um, you know, what's your conclusions and, and, and the reasons why you, uh, you wrote the paper? Yes, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. And I, I, I should I should uh, emphasize again, of course, as you have done, that this paper is my personal opinion, my personal views. It doesn't reflect the position of the G30 or indeed of its members. So it should be re uh, read in that context. Uh, the rationale for writing it is, as you say, uh, I felt that we needed to address a gap in the argument about the national and the nationalist position uh, and on the planning for a central bank and a currency assuming that IndyRef2 results in independence. That is my that is my opening predicate. I'm not arguing and negotiating the argument with the, the people who say we should never do it and we should never be independent. I'm placing that aside and I'm saying from a matter of policy planning, assuming that IndyRef results in, in independence, what, what should we do to get from here to there? And part of that is planning and communication and transparency and moving forward in a clear and consistent manner and addressing those questions that, let's be frank, in, in the run-up to 2014, the nationalist position was weak. It didn't properly and credibly address the issue of currency and the central role of a Scottish central bank, if indeed there should be one. And so as a result, people were able to blow holes in it and it actually weakened the case. So uh, my case is assume that, 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 that there will be a victory, but plan appropriately. And planning requires clarity about the importance of the central bank, the, the pathways forward towards, a set, towards your own Scottish currency. And it requires us to treat Scottish people, not as idiots, but as you know, sensible people who want to know with some clarity about the direction forward and how, what they can anticipate and how they should plan for it. Now, and I believe if you do that for people, if you show them that these are the steps we can take and that this is possible, all other major countries and small countries have done this, have taken their steps as well, uh, that will assuage con concerns and enable us to move forward together to a more prosperous, more equitable Scotland reliant in part on a central bank and a currency that delivers for the population as a whole. 
So what I did was I, I divided it into two pieces. My paper is two pieces. And as you said, the first piece is the institutional piece. And well, why do you want to talk about institutions? That's boring. That's boring. I've seen some of the other conversations around this topic where people poo-poo institutional aspects. Well, my bias as somebody who's worked in and around central banking for decades is no, you've got to get those institutional pieces back right. And when you when you design something effectively, you set it up, you, you give it the right foundation, you let it run, uh, then you're getting yourself ready for the next steps towards currency, uh, an independent currency and so on. So I talk about the, the necessity of a clear mandate, and I know we will get into that as part of the debate. It's my position that we ought to have a, a limited mandate for the central bank that should focus on uh, on price stability, balanced price stability, uh, that we have to have an independent central bank because history shows us across the world, if you don't have an independent central bank, if the central bank operates at the whim and the, and the wishes of the government, you end up into a in a terrible circumstance where the credibility of the central bank is shot to pieces and you get into runaway inflation circumstances. We also need these governance pieces like how does the bank operate? How long does the governor serve for? How, do, how, how should the governor uh, res, uh, speak to and react to the parliament and the accountability there and also the accountability with the public and so on and so forth? Take You take all those institutional pieces together, which are not rocket science because we can see what works and what doesn't work, but you take those pieces together, you construct the central bank with solid, credible leadership, and you you essentially build that credibility. It's not it's not instantaneous. If we create a central bank at the moment of independence, which is what some argue for, right? Essentially an instantaneous creation over a very short period of time, it will not have credibility. It needs to be established and grow over a period of time, not endlessly, but we need to allow it to have time to get that credibility and, and, they, and then be ready to flip the switch on the currency. So my first half talks about those institutional aspects, and some people are very interested in that, some people are less interested in that. The second piece of it is about the pathway for the currency. Now, I know my colleagues in the uh, Sustainable Growth Commission and, uh, and Andrew Wilson have been pushing and thinking about this for a long time. They've done a lot of incredibly important work and laid the groundwork of the types of questions, the types of tests that we should be thinking about in making the transition. I think about those currency pieces in basically four buckets. So I think about the no-go camp. That's the unionist camp. They say, don't do it. The end of the world is about to occur. Don't do it. It's impossible. It will be a disaster. You know, I, As I said, I, I set aside the no-go camp. I take the view that this is, this is not a credible argument. Uh, that we know that it could be done. The question is, how do you do it with the greatest degree of smoothness and credibility and, and uh, consistency and prudence and so on? So I set aside the no-go, but then there, are, then there are the go now camp, and that's the sort of Scottish Reserve camp uh, team who say, look, do it now, have a central bank, quickly move to a single to a new currency. My view is no. The evidence shows that if you move too rapidly without a, without without uh, planning it, without creating the credibility of the institution, ensuring that has been established for a short but a reasonable amount of time, you increase the risk to the economy. You increase the risk that when you create a Scots pound, you have a sudden de de devaluation of the Scots pound because capital flight 
exits out the door from Edinburgh and, and Glasgow, and you don't have any reserves, so you can't restrain it, and things get rather difficult very fast, prices rise, and so on and so forth. So that's the go now camp. They tend to tell you, look, don't worry, just create it now, just go for it. My view is no, you look at history, best to plan for it, be a bit more prudent than that, not, not rush and rush. And then there's the slow go camp, which is really the Scottish, uh, the Sustainable Growth Committee Commission, which said, well, we're going to have these six tests. We're going to see if these six tests are passed. And until those six tests are passed, and there are many different tests, and some of them are economic, but as William knows, and you know the audience, some of them are not economic, they're political questions. Uh, that if we don't get those six tests right, we will not make the transition and we will just carry on using the pound, basically the sterlingization of, of, the, of the currency of, of an independent country. I take the view that no, I don't want Scotland to sit in a sort of indefinite period, for an indefinite period, an undetermined period, using the pound, having no monetary policy independence. When I look at other small advanced economies in the rest of the world, you don't see them operating like that. They have their own currency, they run their own monetary policy, albeit oftentimes to some degree circumscribed by big neighbors, like the, like the pound sterling, right? But they have their own currency. So my argument is not go slow, don't give any identification of a date when you're actually going to execute this plan. My position is no, there's a, there's a median between the go now and the go slow. So I call it the go smart plan and I say, look, set a date, Get everything clear to the electorate and to the policymakers that you are making that transition. It's not going to be immediate, but it's not going to be endless. And my argument is that it should be less than 10 years. I don't say precisely when, because it's, I think it's not for me as an academic or a commentator to determine for pub, pub, public policymakers in Edinburgh and elsewhere what they should do in terms of the precise detail of the date. That's not, that's not relevant to me. But I'm telling you, it shouldn't take 10 years. It took 10 years for the euro. I think Scottish people are capable of planning faster than 10 years for a small economy, which is relatively simple, and so on and so forth. So I say, set a target, get our, get our plan clear, sell it to the people, and then everything will begin to line up. Because once businesses and once the government and once policymakers and and consumers and investors understand they've got this period of time and that there are going to be steps taken every year towards that goal on multiple levels, then you achieve the goal because we know within our own personal lives, if we set goals, but we never say when, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to do this, but I'll never tell you when. No, you just don't do it. You kick it down the line. You, you probably don't achieve the goal. So that's my case in essence is to say, let's set a date. I don't say whether we, whether we should uh, go directly to the euro. Some people say we should go directly to the euro. My case is that you should have a what's known as a crawling peg, which is you peg your Scots pound to the, the English pound once you create your, your currency, and then you adjust it according to a schedule so that you're gradually changing it when economic conditions occur that need necessitate a change. And that gives short to medium term predictability, but it doesn't, it, it protects you against sudden fluctuations where you, you, you peg and then you hold the peg and you try and defend the peg and then the peg breaks and you, you, you're, you're into crisis mode. Now, some other people will also say, let's go for a floating currency from the get-go. That's also possible, but I, uh, but I don't 
make a determination on that front. And I tend to the, to, to the view that uh, going straight to a floating currency as a new central bank uh, with, with no reserves or little or no reserves and building our credibility is a little bit too risky. And that the thing to do would be to have a crawling peg as it's known. So let me stop there, but let me say and reiterate, and this is coming back to what you said earlier, William. I start off with the premise that we, that this will probably happen, so we should plan for it. It's not impossible. We know how to get from here to there. Many other countries have done it. The question is, how do we do it in the most uh, manageable, planned, clear, and, and transparent way so that everybody has a surety about where we're going? It's not whether we're going to get there. It's how we do it with the with the greatest confidence and the greatest degree of prudence. So let me stop there. Thank you very much. Um, that that is a that is a good summary. I mean, I would certainly recommend to everyone that they have a, a look through the paper. It took me about an hour to go through it, making notes. You know, so it's not an it's not an incredibly um, detailed paper from that perspective, but it certainly gives a really clear idea, and it's certainly a really credible argument and perspective. You know, and, and coming from you, Stuart, gives it you know that that extra element of credibility. Um, so. I've got loads of questions. I'm going to try and get through as many of the audience questions as I can. And um, the first one, um, Stuart, is a kind of two-part question. Um, how long, how long uh, will it take to set up a central bank? Um, I know we'd spoken earlier about trying to get an actual figure, a time from you, and you've said that's not really your. You don't feel that's really your um, perspective to, to, to give on that. Um, but you know, the question is, how long would it take? You know, practically. Um, and then the second part of that is, you know, when will we get our resources like oil and gas into Holyrood? Which I think is a political question that we'll, we'll leave aside. But you know, if we got independence tomorrow. How long do you think it would take, you know, realistically to set up the institutions and the framework to be ready for a central bank? Well, I, th I think you, you've got to give it some number of years to set up the bank. You need to staff it with the best people. They've got to have the highest standards of governance and, and probity and so on and so forth. And with the right structures around them for accountability and transparency to the Scottish people, because after all, uh, that central banks must be accountable to, 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 the, to the populace as well as being independent. But once you've created it, it's going to take a number, a number of years. Uh, I would say it might take five or six years to, to get, get things running smoothly where people understand the, the rhythms of how it works and how the, the announcements and the analysis. And also, importantly, the oversight of the financial firms and the, and the markets in, in, in Scotland. Because in the first phase, when you've got this sterling phase where you're reliant on sterling, but you haven't yet pulled the trigger and created your own currency, the principal thing that the central bank will be doing will really be twofold. It's going to be reporting on the state of the Scottish economy and opining on what needs to be done. And secondly, it's going to be supervising the firms, the financial firms in Scotland for which it is responsible. And by doing those things credibly uh, over a period, a number of years, you're then going to get that, build that credibility, build that uh, uh that credibility and that strength of the institution. And we know from research in the IMF and others that once a bank is credible, if it's created that credibility, it actually then uh, can, can set lower interest rates than it otherwise would because markets believe that what it says is it's going to do. So that's the sort of interreaction of interrelationship between credibility and policy because uh, you create a dynamic that's self-reinforcing. So it's not instantaneous, but it won't take forever. 
uh, I, and I think part of that, you know, you set you set your goal, you set your your dates for creation of of the currency, and then you move forward from that point. Uh, you you set up the central bank relatively quickly, and then give it a number of years to establish itself with the markets and with other actors, and gradually build it up like that. So um, no definite amount of years from Stuart for that answer, but a clear <laughs> understanding of how you would move to that. And certainly, you know, as you said there, less than a decade. Um, I actually had a conversation with um, Tim Rideout just last week, and he said that um, having had um, some kind of correspondence with the European Central Bank, that he thinks it's much more likely that four years is actually the time when you would have a central bank ready to go. So, um, you know, I'm so that's more in up, line with with yeah. what I was. I mean, if you think if you think about, yeah, the ECB itself. I mean, it wasn't an instantaneous creation, right? You have to create the institution, you staff it, then you go to the ECU, you set establish the uh, what's known as you know as basically the the payments and settlement system. So that's the banks operating yeah. amongst themselves. And once you've got that in the place, then the next steps are relatively smooth because people people can rely on them. They know they work. And then you move to to adoption of the currency itself, which in any case, of course, is largely uh, electronic now. Anyway. Yeah. Great. Um, uh, loads of questions. So I'm going to try and get through them. Here's here's the first one or the second one. So um, pegging the Scotch pound to the English pound, which is dropping like a stone. Is that really the right thing to do? That's a good question. Uh, since 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 most of the trade that Scotland does is with England, uh, you you probably want to to have to have that peg for some considerable period of time, because you want to basically maintain the levels uh, in a in a relatively stable circumstance. And so yes, you probably have to do that. This I don't I don't anticipate that that the English pound will continue to to collapse. You know, long term. Although there's an, an, an uh, there's an argument out there, or as you know, about whether or not the English pound is becoming like an emerging economy pound mm. or currency, and we can have that on a separate date. But uh, I think you have to peg in the, in the first instance. Uh, I think it's I think it's it's wishful thinking to to assume that the Scottish pound, if it was not pegged to the English pound, would somehow rise against the English pound. That's not likely to happen. Let, we have a very high level of government. A deficit uh, in Scotland. We've got, we, you know, our fiscal situation is not in order at the moment, and therefore the probability that the that the Scottish pound might fall vis-a-vis -vis the English pound is is a real one. Uh, if you if you floated instead of pegged in the first instance, I would go for pegging because then we get that surety for for business in the in the media in the early and early and early medium term in the first four or five years that they know that they're going to be uh, relatively stable vis-a-vis -vis their principal trading partner and then you can move uh to you know to a pegging as i say which then keeps the fluctuation to a minimum great great i was so, just going to ask at this point um, which is related to the, what you've just said um so pegging initially to the pound but in the longer term, I was speaking to John Eggleston, who was the uh, he was in the Central Bank of Iceland, and he's very much for having a floating currency. Mm -hmm. His view is that a floating currency tells you what's going wrong in your economy, so then you you can see from the float mm -hmm. what 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 is going wrong and fix it. I mean that there is there is some truth to that. Uh, you know, you you you're you're at you're 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 in a circumstance where the markets will make really harsh judgments. 
and it forces you to do things that you otherwise wouldn't want to do. Uh, and and that's the sort that's the that's the sort of traditional uh, sort of monetarist position, really, which says you know you go f you allow the markets to determine everything. However, there's now a position which is the position of the IMF has shifted somewhat, and they say, well, yes, you you ought to have generally speaking sort of crawling pegs or semi sort of floating currencies, but uh, central banks should also retain the ability to essentially put on, and governments to put capital controls on if they need to, because there are there may be a circumstance where external uh, events are so severe that there's a sudden flight of capital and it causes terrible disasters, particularly in small countries, uh, because you're at the because you're you're especially vulnerable to those types of what's known as sudden stops, where you get big flows in and out and you can't control them. And that's that. And if you're if you're taking the Iceland position, basically you don't do anything when that happens. And so you who pays the price? Well, of course, it's going to be your population. So pegging so, doesn't solve it entirely. It's a sort of median position. Uh, which, which gives you some of the benefits of floating and some degree of greater stability. Yeah, I, I'm not sure about how much capital flight would occur. I mean, I'm, I'm not really clear on this myself. I, and you maybe know more than I do about this. But um, we've had Richard Murphy on the programme as well. And his thinking is that actually most of our capital is held in property and property can't be moved. So he, he, he doesn't envisage... Uh, a run on capital. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, that it may be that most uh, most of the much of Scottish assets are held in housing, uh, but that but that that's a whole separate debate about whether that's a productive use of capital. Uh, but if you actually want to drive your economy, that capital has to be invested in real goods, capital goods that increase the productivity of the economy. And you've got to attract those uh, those inflows, and you want to increase those inflows. You don't want to get to a circumstance where large investors say, "Well, you know, the, let's hypothetical where the the government uh, circumstance, the government government fiscal situation is so out of whack with the realities of the Scottish economy, and it's got it has a particular problem, particular problems for whatever reason, and then and then there's a failure to act on that, and the Scottish let's say the Scottish central bank doesn't act sufficiently aggressively to 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 reassure the markets and then people exit and then we're left in a very uh, very much worse circumstance so uh, i could i we could have a whole debate about whether uh, whether putting money in your house is a good use of capital uh, investment and and my uh, i we, we should perhaps leave that aside but it's a, it's a, it's a good point yeah, C capital flight is definitely something to um, consider, or, or also um, how much capital are you likely to bring in? Because obviously we don't know if that could be the case. It could be. It could be the exact opposite of that. And we've got a brilliant question from Lars. Uh, there's an allegorical sculpture on top of the old Parkhead Glasgow Savings Bank called Prudence Strangling Want. Is there a danger of too much prudence killing desire and impetus? That's the job of a central bank, isn't it? Is that is that not the very definition of it? What's your thoughts on that, Stuart? Well, the, that's a, that's a very uh, artistic question, which I feel perhaps underqualified to to answer. There's always going to be a tension between the requirement for sort of prudence and small C conservatism from the central bank, particularly of a small country that's not a reserve currency. You know, you can't print your way out of this uh, circumstance wherever you're standing at the, at the moment, and and so you're going to be criticised as a central banker for 
being too prudent, being too conservative, come on, loosen the taps and so on. Uh, but in it, but 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 if you but if you mishandle it, if you go in the other direction and uh, appear to lose control of uh, you, of credibility and lose the credibility of the markets, then you're in a really disastrous circumstance. And we've seen that in Argentina. We can see that in Turkey now with the inflation rate at astronomical levels. And then you create a terrible disaster for the average people. Uh, when you get a circumstance where the markets don't believe the central bank is credible that uh, and it, it can or wi is willing to control uh, inflation. In fact, we have a circumstance for the first time in, of course, in 40 years that most major economies are actually grappling with that now. Will the central banks restrain inflation fast enough to, to make the cost in terms of short-term economic pain the lowest possible? And we'll have to see how that plays out. But that's this that's the essential element of prudence and credibility because the, the, the greatest single uh, uh, the greatest single support that a central bank can provide for the Scotland and for the more equitable more prudent uh, prosperous Scotland is to maintain a degree of price stability so that so that working people know their money is not evaporating in their, before their very eyes that is the key thing we need to focus on that and that's what uh, small countries have to do that's what you see in uh, Sweden and elsewhere yeah okay well hopefully we'll get to that because um you know we really need to dive into if if central banks certainly in a small country actually can and uh, control price inflation when they're they're importing price and um, when they're importing and importing that inflation and um, a really good question here um from Peter what do you say to those who claim England would not allow Scotland to retain the pound sterling on independence? And you do cover that in the, the paper. So thanks, Peter. That's a really good question. Well, of course, we can use whichever currency we want. Uh, Ecuador foolishly uh, adopted the Bitcoin as its currency not long ago, and that was a total disaster. But we can uh, we can use the pound sterling. In fact, that's the that's Andrew Wilson's position, right? Basically, continued sterl sterlingization of the economy. Uh, but the but the, but the, the, the uh, but the problem with that is we we won't have any input on monetary policy. We'll have no control over monetary policy because it will be set in thread needle street, uh, and we just and so the central bank is left with oversight of the financial system and the payment system and so on and so forth, which is important. But we're left we have no input in uh, uh, you know from a policy perspective into the thinking of the central bank in Threadneedle Street. Of course, in re the reality today in Scotland is that we don't really have much input in that. But but at least as a but at least as a unitary state, the Bank of England needs to consider the, the economy as a whole and that includes Scotland. So my answer to to the questioner is no no, they can't stop you from using the pound. Anyone can use the pound. But if you if we use the pound over the long term, we're essentially denying our own ability to make marginal adjustments to our monetary policy and approaches that are better for our economy, especially if and when the Scottish economy begins to diverge a bit more from the English economy. One could imagine a circumstance where the English economy, let's say, is going is performing poorly because of a lack of investment, because of a whole host of factors. And the Scottish economy, which I like to think, would be performing better because it's more equitable economy, because it's got prudent oversight and regulation because it's got a smart highly educated populace is doing much better and so that we want to have the ability to diverge gradually from our big neighbor and i think that is indeed 
possible, but not really if you're if you're using the pound over the long term. And there are issues using using the pound in terms of the clearing and the payment system. You know, we still need some kind of tacit agreement, if not a formal currency yes. union with the Bank of England to make this work. You know, so it isn't the case that we can just use this and, and, and say, you know, that, it doesn't that's absolutely right. That, you know, so that's still, absolutely right. There still has to be some form of, of agreement um, for, for that to work. Um, okay, um, I, would, I would just say by work, work, yeah, but just an emphasis, I do say that in the paper. And sometimes, you know, our nationalist colleagues will say, well, you're being too, you're acting as if you want to be too close to the Bank of England. Well, they're our big brother, monetarily speaking, and, and we need to be very close with them on, on, on payments and, and, and clearing and also on lender of last resort functions because they're the one that will be overseeing these big banks and if they get into a crisis we need to know about that and we need to be in conversation all the time and being a close com confidant of and cooperative with the bank of england is not a negative thing in fact it's necessary for what we're trying to achieve as you say william Great, great. Um, a question from Cameron here, and I, I think this leads on to a wider question around reserves, um, but there's a suggestion that the sterling Scots have in their account can be swapped for the new Scots pound. Uh, the swap sterling, including the pounds in circulation, can be used for foreign exchange reserves. Is this how you kind of instantly build up uh, foreign reserves? And if not, what position will Scotland Central Bank be in in terms of foreign reserves? Thanks, Cameron. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, the, I, 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 there are two, two, two possibilities. One is you, you, st you start out with no reserves, and then you essentially have to gradually build them up and create an, a, a cooperative and a positive and prudent environment where, where you accrue reserves. That's right. It's also possible that as part of the negotiations after IndyRef2 signals that we're becoming an independent country, that there would be a negotiation over. Uh, over the Bank of England giving a proportionate uh, amount of the reserves that they currently hold to Scotland. And then we would probably also have to take a proportionate amount of the debt that they also hold. Uh, so that's another way uh, of, of, of generating the reserves, but they're not going to be instant. And that's another reason why I argue for a, a sort of a, a median position and say, look, let's, let's move uh, prudently, but, uh, but uh, deliberatively but not immediately, because you because in, in the first instance we will be we will have an institution that's kind of lacking credibility, and our reserves will either be zero or very low. Sure. And we're Can not, I just ask that so question ahead. again, though, because it's a very specific question. Because you know this is my understanding as well that as soon as we allow people to change their sterling into Scots pound, then we have foreign reserves of X amount of sterling. Is that not your um, understanding, Stuart? Yeah, it, the, yes, but it's still going to be relatively, you know, it's, go, it's going to be relatively limited, is my point. Uh, we're not Singapore, where we're running a massive uh, current account surplus. And mm. so Singapore is a tiny country with a huge war chest in its central bank because there's a huge influx of capital all the time. So it's not just that in Singapore, the, the individuals themselves have a very high savings rate, which they mm. do but it's that you've got this constant huge inflow of money to Singapore. And so that yeah. enables Singapore as a small central bank to do things that we couldn't do in Scotland in the first instance. Uh, so that's, that's, so that's what, that's, that, that's why I make that d determination or that, that difference between let's say the Singaporean case and our own case. I just don't think we're going to have uh, enough reserves to fight the fight in a sort of, in a floating currency defense of our current uh, currency. If we hit a crisis, 
early on. Uh, we can see that with much larger uh, countries than us. If you, one of the cases I use in the in the paper is the case of the Thai baht. And in in the, in the start of the of the 1997 a East Asian currency crisis, uh, the, the the baht was was uh, was pegged to the dollar. Uh, the central bank said it would defend the value of the baht, uh, but they then let slip uh, to investors in a private meeting that they didn't have enough reserves and they felt that they couldn't do it. And then, of course, all of the investors uh, bet against bet bet on the collapse of the of the bat and forced it to break with its with its peg, uh, and that's a much larger economy with much greater reserves mm -hmm. than we would have. So, so I, I I'm not I'm not disputing that we would have some reserves at the outset, but they're very mo very modest. It will take some time to build them up. The good thing is, that in le at least from a macro perspective, most of the risk of financial uh, crisis or collapse of individual institutions will be borne by the Bank of England anyway, not us, because the because the home regulator would be in London, not in Edinburgh. So um, yeah, I mean, if we 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 became independent, uh, there'll be a proportion of people will want to keep using sterling for a while, um, and those uh, I would imagine primarily committed to independence will will change to the the Scottish pound uh, right away, and they'll change their bank accounts and denominate them in Scottish pounds, so that the sterling that they held before would would be our sterling reserves. But on to other other currencies. So would you imagine that, for example? Bank of England would be quite happy to set up um, swap lines and or or and the European Central Bank. I know that the, the you know banks across the world are setting up swap lines so that you know they can escape predation on their currencies. Well, the, I, I'm not sure that that's why they have stopped uh, swap lines, but they definitely have set them up as a as a backstop in case of crisis. Yes. So that you don't, so that uh, so that you don't run out of dollars or pounds or Swiss francs or whatever, because because you need to keep those those uh, the pipes, as it were, the plumbing of the international financial system running smoothly in crisis. And it strikes me as highly likely that we would be able to participate in a you know in so a modest to a modest degree in those as, as an independent country. Um, and it would be appropriate. You, you would you essentially have the agreement there in the back pocket of all of the participants, so that if crisis strikes, you still have access to that to that flow of the other of the foreign currency that you need to keep things uh, from capsizing entirely. So, could you explain how a modern central bank, especially one in a small country, controls price inflation? As this is the mandate you propose for the central bank. Yes, it is. It is a, a real struggle. Uh, and it's it's of course if you if you're right next to your largest uh, partner it's, it makes it harder, but of course you're going to it, it, once you, once you be, once you become fully functioning and you have control over your monetary policy then you would uh, use interest rates to 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 basically depress or 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 encourage demand. You would have to increase interest rates as needed where we saw inflation running out of control. You would also have, importantly, a series of regulatory levers that help you too. So an example of that is in the Israeli case where, and this has also happened in Hong Kong and Singapore too, uh, where house prices started to go out of whack. They were increasing far too fast. And this was damaging to the economy because it was, of course, siphoning money out of the real economy into 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 these assets, and it was also sort of uh, making it hard for people to buy houses, and it was heating the, the the economy up as well. 
So what did the Israeli central bank governor then, Stan Fisher, do? He increased the loan, loan to value ratio. So he said, you, uh, loan to deposit ratio. So he said, well, in order to cool it down, I will, I will change that ratio. In other words, make it less easy to get over leveraged. And in doing so, it wasn't a popular thing. He was very unpopular for doing it. And was he the central? Was he head of the central bank? He was the head of the central bank. But by doing that, he cooled the the, the housing economy before it blew up his small economy. Uh, and and it, the reason why I use that example is it's it's one of those things that is difficult to do, but it's it's what you want your central banker to do, which is when when the when evidence of overheating starts, they need to get ahead of it. They don't wait until there's lot and wait until it's blindingly obvious the situation is beyond mm. control. And this is the problem we're sitting with at the moment in many economies. It's getting ahead of it and saying, I anticipate things are, are really get, getting too hot. Let me cool it down now. In the Israeli case, they were able to do that. It, it smoothed the economy situation out. And they, then, and they then didn't suffer from a housing boom bust cycle that we've seen in other countries. So that's an example. So there are multiple ways that we can get to some of that price uh, restraint. Uh, it's, I agree. It's 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 perhaps harder for smaller countries, uh, but it, it is it is still doable. I, I see it. I see other instances uh, elsewhere in the world where it's done effectively by careful management of the central bank and, of course, by prudent actions by the uh, fiscal authorities as well. Yeah, yeah, we have to be realistic, you know, that it's not just one thing that's going to solve the problem of inflation. Right. There are lots of other things. And I think central banks can be pushed down a, a route where they're told to fix things and what they do is lift interest rates. And often it doesn't it, it doesn't solve that. Um, I've got a, a figure from Cameron, um, Stuart, which I think you might like to see. Uh, so Warren Mosler and Richard, that's maybe MASH, is maybe not MASH, that's, that, that might be Murphy. I think the first year, the equivalent of 75% of GDP would be swapped for new currency. Um, so we're talking around 60 billion in terms of currency. So that's a figure from, um, I'm, I'm sure you know who um, Warren Mosler is. So I think there is an alternative view to the um, foreign exchange and, and how to get that to reserves. Um, so thanks again, Cameron, for that. Um, Karen, do you want to ask another question? We've got, we've got a few more minutes before we have to head off. Yeah, um, I, I want to go back to one of the first things you said, actually, and it was about central bank independence and, um, and of course, having the right people um, in, in the central bank to make it credible, you're going to have to get the right staff, of course. Um, but the, uh, the, other, the, other, the other point of view that I wanted to bring to your attention as well is I've, I've listened to Paul Tucker and uh, Claudia Sam talk about this in that central bankers, to a certain extent, politicians are expecting the central bank to solve fiscal problems. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, the, the government does have to spend <laughs> money uh, and, and that has to happen. And, it, you know, there's a fine balance between, I, I think fundamentally at the heart of it, you know, your central bankers are civil servants and really your politicians do, should be listening to the civil servants very closely and listen to their expertise. And I'm in that situation now every day um, where, you know, I'm, I'm coming in with, from a political point of view but you know there are people that are in the government and operating the government machinery all the time. So, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I I agree, and I it, it, before the pandemic, the the oft stated and re relatively correct point from the central bankers was, hold on a second, you keep you know the fiscal authorities in most countries are not doing what's necessary to to address the economic ills in those countries, whether it's structural adjustment, so called, 
or you know investment in 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 education and all these other things that have to be done and must be the the, the premise the, the 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 role of government not the role of central banks you're not doing that and then you come to me every six months or more often than that and say to the central bankers fix it for me but central bankers can't do that they can they can they should be aiming at relative price stability at making sure that markets are uh, calm and so on and so forth to create the underpinnings for sustained growth over the long haul. They cannot substitute for government. Now, the paradox, and it's a good paradox, is that in response to the pandemic, all the governments suddenly realized, hold on a second, yeah, central banks can't solve for this. And so they, they suddenly started pulling the fiscal levers. And it was very effective in many cases, right? I mean, the furlough schemes that we saw in Britain and in France and other types of mechanisms and huge payments in America stopped us from going into another great recession, the likes of which we hadn't seen in 70 or 80 years. So that's an example of the change in, in, in mindset, I think, from the fiscal uh, side, Kieran, is that, yeah, it was right. They used to ask the central banks to do everything. Now we're back in a slightly better circumstance where the fiscal authorities have, and the governments realize, actually, we have a lot of levers at our control. The central banks can do some of it. Now the central banks have the uneven, un, un, unenviable uh, circumstance where they have to focus maybe on causing a short-term recession to stop inflation from getting out of control. That's their job. The fiscal, piece, the fiscal piece is, is, is the government's job. So, 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 last question: um, uh, How does how much does this differ from the Sustainable Growth Commission suggestion? Um, and it, well, I'll leave I'll leave that. So your paper: How does it differ from what the Sustainable Growth Commission? We've got about a minute for that answer. Um, thanks, Hashby, for that question. Thank you. It it it, it is a slight. It, it's it's a it's a proposed difference in that we ought to be clear about the actual pathway from here. To, the, to our own currency. Let's not leave it indeterminate. Let's not, let's not pretend that it's up, there are all these goals and we're not sure and we can't say. That is not being frank with the, the voters. Make, make it clear to the voters that we're headed in this pathway, down this pathway, that it's not going to be a disaster, that it actually will set the, the grounds for a more prosperous Scotland and that we have a timeline and we can follow it successfully upon independence. Great. Thank you very much. Okay, thanks very much for your time, Stuart. But thanks everyone for joining us tonight and we'll um, see you next week. Stuart, thanks very much for spending a little bit more time with us after the live interview. We've got loads more questions, but you know we're going to have you back on um, to cover a lot more. So just a few more general questions. Karen, do you want to go first? Yeah, so you talked to us a little bit about a crawling peg. Um, I, I would like to really understand that more. Can you explain that a little bit more in, in more detail for me? Yeah, so, so a crawling peg has the benefits of, of certainty, but the ability to, in a planned, ongoing way, adjust you, your currency vis-a-vis -vis your largest trading partner, in this case, uh, the pound. So the example I use is the Bank of Israel. They have a crawling peg against the dollar every six months, the governor of the Bank of Israel and his monetary policy committee, such as it is, come together and then they discuss it. They say, well, where is our economy vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. economy? Are, you know, are, are, are strains evident? Are we, are we, you know, should should we devalue slightly or, or, or indeed appreciate slightly? And they use a band and they say, we're trying to keep it within a band. So we don't want big fluctuations. But what we want is a... Uh, 
a, a, a clear approach that every six months we make a judgment call. Now, maybe we keep it steady or we adjust it marginally. But by doing that, you give your you give certainty to the industries and to the consumer that things aren't going to get out of whack suddenly. But you also give yourself an, uh, the opportunity to make adjustments looking forward. And people say, well, things are a little bit out, but I know that there's a, you know, there's a, an MPC meeting coming up. There's going to be a slight adjustment. Far better to have that than to have a sort of hard peg. And then you basically get the hedge funds attacking you and trying to push you off that peg. That doesn't preclude the possibility that you have real attacks on your currency that require additional steps, as I said, including as in going so far as to have capital controls and so on. But when I looked at the small economies out there that are similar to ours in terms of size and scale and so on, and exposure to another large uh, trading partner, the Israeli case really stood out to me as an example of what, of good central banking. I mean, they had a history of very, very high inflation back in the 80s, and they had to get to grips with it. Uh, we don't have that history, thank goodness, at the moment. At the moment, it's up to Andrew Bailey to stop it. Uh, but but uh, that's, the, that's the essence of, of a crawling peg. It gives you short to medium terms uh, predictability as businesses, as consumers, and so on, but at a, a, a margin for adjustment on, a, on an understood timetable. So it's sort of, it, it's, it dovetails with my overall view, which is that you ought to be communicating clearly your pathway and your timetables. I guess the thing that, that, that then the next concern for me is then how does that uh, affect our interaction with other currencies? Well, that's, that's a good question. I'm not, I, I I, I couldn't give you a proper uh, answer to that at the moment. I mean, basically, we would es essentially be mirroring the, the circumstance of, of, of other, of, of the sort of Bank of England in that case. I, I, since, since we're not exposed hugely to the euro at the moment, and the euro has, is relatively stable, you don't need multiple pegs, is my point. Given that our, our single uh, largest trading partner is is, is the pound and the, uh, and and the British economy, we would peg to that. That would be our principal concern. We we should you know and and we wouldn't need to worry so much vis-a-vis -vis the other currencies. I mean, we we could move pretty quickly from um, England being our um, most important trading partner to Europe being our most important trading partner. And I know it took Ireland a lot, you know, I think it was, you know, decades, 30 or 40 years, but but they changed significantly from, from UK to Europe. So a peg, you know, might only be necessarily, a, a peg to sterling might only necessarily be there for a few years. It doesn't need to be, you know, decades for us to do that. Because as you said, it's important to have that connection to your largest trading partner. Looking ahead, is that certainly something that you could see that that, that we don't need that peg for a, a particularly long period of time? Perhaps you don't. Eventually, once you've established the credibility of your your central bank, you've you've got a track record of delivering a, a degree of prudent management of the economy. We've got our fiscal state in order, uh, and and we're you know we're getting increased productivity because of sensible investments in green technology and the green transition and because we're investing in education because we're taking the steps that we need to do as a small knowledge-based economy really uh then we can begin to diverge and maybe we we want indeed we want to create that kind of dynamic where ultimately scotland could be a more uh 
a, a, a more appealing place to invest and perhaps even outperform England in many ways. But of course, that's not going to happen overnight. I believe it's indeed possible. We've seen it in other countries. We've seen it in the Nordic countries. It's you know we 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 have to be that type of economy. We don't have any uh, we don't have any alternative really, and so so the Scot the Scottish Central Bank can do a small part of that. The principal part that it does is carefully uh, regulating and supervising the financial institutions, managing the p payment system, and assuring a degree of of uh, of uh, stability and inflation stability. That's it's that's what it does. It's a limited thing, but it's an important piece uh, of of helping underpin that transition to a co an economy which may ultimately be less connected to a larger, perhaps underperforming English economy. You come out quite strongly against a dual mandate um, for the central bank, and a dual mandate is normally price uh, price price control and also full employment. Would you like to expand on that for us? Yes, I'm, I mean the. There's there's a lot that you know, standing here as a sort of a centre left political person, I, I, I there's a lot of appeal to a, a dual mandate, and of course the the U.S. Federal Reserve Board is the principal example of that, and you've seen Janet Yellen and you've seen Jay uh, Jay Powell and you you saw indeed Ben Bernanke before them pursuing that dual mandate. Uh, historically, the, the 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 U.S. Federal Reserve hasn't in fact stress the, the dual mandate. That's a relatively new thing, although it's always had the dual mandate. Now, the difference, though, is that this is the global reserve currency. You know, the US central bank can print its way out of a, of, a, of a crisis, and it has done that, right? Trillions of dollars, and it has bought assets of the type would, that would have never have been considered five or 10 years ago. And so it's been very aggressive. Uh, we were seeing this sort of the, the the basically the headache after the party, as as uh, you know, as as Paul Volcker and others, or uh, William McChesney Martin said, you know, will you take away the, uh, the the punch bowl before the party gets swinging? Well, they are in the case of this party, the answer is no. We didn't take away the punch bowl, and now we all have a hangover. The reason why I I, I believe the point on the Federal Reserve is I don't think a small independent central bank has the room to maneuver to to deliver on a, on a dual mandate. I think the best thing that they can do is underpin the stability of pricing and prices in the economy and assure investors and consumers that things are being run prudently uh, in that regard. We as a small central bank in Scotland, newly independent, cannot print our way out of crises. Uh, nor, and as you said earlier in our conversation about the extension of central bank responsibilities to almost areas where they can't really deliver, you know, the central bank cannot deliver a high-skilled economy. That's not what it does. The central bank can't uh, deliver specific investments. That's what the uh, you know, the Scottish Industrial Investment Bank needs to do. Uh, they can do some of those things, but not all of not all of these things that you're requiring to achieve full employment, and which the um, American central bank has managed to pull off. But other countries don't do it for the for the reasons I've implied, which is it, it is too much to expect smaller central banks to achieve that goal if you're not a reserve currency. So better to focus on the things you can do, and hope and expect that the fiscal authorities and the executive in Edinburgh deliver on those other things which they are best able to uh, deliver on. 
Karen, I know you'll come back on that. I just wanted to put in a clarification there, Stuart. The um, Scottish National Investment Bank, um, it's investing 150 million a year. You know, the, the, it, it's hardly anything, you know, in an, an, an economy the size of Scotland. So it's it's tiny. And, you know, I know you said it's part of it, but it is, you know, I've been looking at it in quite in depth over the last couple of days. And it's, it's a tiny, tiny amount. And if we've got any hope for that bank to do anything, it really needs to have 10, 20 times the, right. the amount of money. Um, just a clarification. Karen, do you want to come back on that? Yeah, I'm very keen on uh, eradicating um, unnecessary unemployment, un unwanted unemployment. Um, you know, I think it's very toxic for any society and it has been particularly toxic for Scotland because large swathes of people were dumped onto the dole queues in the 1980s. And that's had a, a reverberating effect through the ages where, you know, people who I would uh, counter have a lack of agency. Uh, that lack of agency results in self-medication. Um, and, you know, this is something that, that happens. So I would really like to eradicate um, uh, unwanted unemployment um, and voluntary unemployment. Mm -hmm. So um, I, so why can't your central bank ensure that your your people are, are employed through, the, the, through policy choices? Why can't the government choose policy choices to ensure that they have sent uh, full employment? Mm -hmm. And well, you, we argue for a job guarantee, which would be a transition job. It's not mm -hmm. uh, we create unnecessary uh, civil service jobs. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the civil service should well, be fully staffed um, to, to what you need. And we have a, a civil service that's too small for, for the size mm -hmm. of our country. So we're not able to deliver everything that people would want in an advanced economy for that reason. But then the, 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 the other thing is that people when people become unemployed, um, we would we, we would like to ensure that they're not in a situation where they're completely down on their, their backsides, basically. Oh, well, let me say, you know, as somebody who studied social policy in my undergraduate, I'm, I'm with you all the way in what you're saying on un unemployment and how corrosive it is and terrible it is. And it's a it's a it's a terrible disease and a burden and it cripples communities. So you don't have to convince me on that. I think the, I think my position is rather that those solutions are not going to be central bank solutions. What they are are fiscal and policy solutions designed carefully by governments uh, that and, and both both national and local that deliver that change. Right? We th that is that is properly and should be the government policy. Uh, I think I think where the where the central bank can be helpful and supportive is it changes it can change its uh, supervisory approaches. It can say, for instance, if if the whole country is is behind the net zero transition, which it is, right? Then the then the supervisory uh, oversight of the of the central bank rightly should ask the big firms and financial firms that it supervises, what is your net zero plan? What are you doing? How are you how are you implementing it? Show me the evidence. Who are you investing in? Right? Make asking these questions, which is it's quite controversial in some places, but it's increasingly what's going to have to happen. And by doing that, that's one way of a central bank saying, hold on, we want to align the economy with what is sustainable. After all, we operate in a planet, not outside a planet. And in doing that, we will help uh, tangentially, but importantly, to redirect investment to create those types of jobs that we need to create. Right. So that's an example of how central bank supervisory action can make a real difference. But it's not, the it's not to say that, we're, that the central bank can provide by printing the money. Uh, 
the, the immediate way solution to unemployment. The solution to unemployment is more complex than that and re relies more, I believe, on the fiscal authorities and the policies they pursue in tandem with a central bank that is focused on trying to make sure that poor people don't get crushed by high inflation. I mean, after all, the single largest tax on the poor right now is inflation, it's energy inflation, price inflation, right? That's crushing. And that's why, that's what the central bank must be focused on because that's something that we can to some degree change. But we can't, we, what, we, what the central bank can't do is exactly apply, you know, ensure that uh, individuals or communities in a particular area get jobs of a particular kind. That has to be the fiscal authorities and it's rightly the fiscal authorities that need to do that. It's really interesting you say that because of course there's support for that, but the central bank over the last 10 years has put policies in place that have greatly increased the wealth of the already wealthy. And the monetary policy by, by, by QE has, has supercharged inequality, has benefited the wealthiest, most of them who don't need to work for a job. But you can see, you know, and I know this is a discussion for another time, but you can see that we're looking at a central bank thinking, well, hold on a minute. If you can somehow keep inflation down, but make the wealthy wealthier, surely you can keep inflation down and give jobs to people who want them. So that's a rhetorical, it's not a question, that's a statement. Yeah. But you can see why I think we've got so much more. I, I think, I think, I think, the, you know, I, I, I agree uh, with your point there. There's no doubt that the long period of extremely low negative interest rates has uh, been a boon to people who can take large debt, leverage it, reinvest it, and live like the life of Riley, basically. It's been terrible for pensioners. It's been terrible for people on fixed incomes. Uh, and it hasn't it hasn't uh, delivered for the poor. But th let me give you an example of that. This is a failure of the American policy process, uh, but I think it applies to some degree in in in, uh, in the United Kingdom as well. Uh, you know, when when the GFC hit, uh, the, the the U.S. government had a, a had an option: would you bail out the banks or would you bail out the homeowners? Now, FDR, when he was struck by the same a crisis type of crisis in the 1920s he bailed out the homeowners he forced the banks to take haircuts and he on the loans and he made the loans be pushed through the the, the judicial process so that the, the homeowners suddenly had a lower debt to pay right so they they came they were they were lifted above being underwater that was a great solution because it short-circuited the crisis it it, it, it gave money to the people in the street Right. It, it wasn't so much a central banking solution, but it was the it was use of, a use of of government government power and central banking interve intervention. What happened in the American case was no, they bailed out the banks. They didn't re they didn't adjust the mortgages of the of the people underwater, and it and it extended the length of the crisis. It caused lots of the upset and anger that we see in the populist movements, or at least contributed to it. And of today. course, that happened in the UK as well. It wasn't just right. The so my, my, and, you, and everyone followed that. Yeah. So my partial answer is yeah. I I don't dispute the critic critics who say look massive largesse to, to wealthy debt owners, uh, holders, has, has skewed the system. That's definitely a, a, an argument and a credible argument that needs to be had. Uh, but I, I still think maybe, uh, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm yet to be con con convinced that a small central bank in Scotland could, is the principal way in which you readjust that. 
or, or, or change that narrative. I think we can change it, but I just don't think uh, over-reliance of the central bank is the way to do it. Stuart, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we'd love to speak to you after summer, uh, maybe Good. into the autumn when you're back in the state. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Pleasure. Uh, nice to see you both. Thank Thanks you so much. much. Cheers. Bye for now. Bye. That was great. Um, I did manage to read a little bit of his paper and the questions that I had from that, I didn't use at all. <laughs> I just, I listened to what he said and I just started scribbling things down going, oh yeah, I've got 10 questions now. <laughs> I, 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 I'm scrolling through mine as well and I've got, I've got absolutely loads. So I, I do think it, it would be a really good idea to get him on again. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I, that perspective, just a different view of what Scotland would have to do in terms of currency and, and central banks, really, really interesting. And I, you know, I've got a huge amount of respect for what Tim Rideout and 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 you know the and, and the people around him are doing. And um, but I definitely think because of who surrounds Stuart when he's at the G30 group, that that his view is, um, you know, has to be has to be taken on board. And you know, I disagree with. A lot of what he was, a lot of of what he was saying, but I think it's important that we get into that and we kind of explain um, that to everyone who's taking part. But yeah, really interesting interview. Totally. I think. Totally. I mean, there's, there's there's no point in getting people on that have got very aligned views with us. I mean, we want to hear why people think differently. I mean, fundamentally, how are we going to find the best solutions for Scotland unless we scour <laughs> all the possibilities? And you never know. We might even be wrong, Karen. Imagine that. Maybe we're wrong. You know. So that, and I think that is what we're trying to do. You know. And um, as I said at the start of that, I think it's fantastic we've been able to bring the perspective of someone who said we're starting from this position that. It'll be fine, you know, and we're now talking about what our central bank looks like, when our currency will be released compared to when we were uh, um, uh, in 2013 and at the start of 2014 when we were trying to defend this position. And, you know, this is one of the central messages from Scotonomics is that we have to start having discussions about how we do this stuff rather than why we should do it. And I think that is an argument that's t that's now 10 years old. We need to think about how we do it. And, and contributions from people like Stuart are really, really important. Is there anything you want to leave the audience with um, after our extended interview with Stuart? Any thoughts? Yeah, um, I, I I just thought he was really, he was really, really interesting guy. Um, and, and clearly, I think from the paper, a lot of people had imagined that he was quite right leaning, and it, it, you know it was very clear to to me from what he was saying is no, I, I consider myself to be left of centre, and he's very sympathetic to to, to he, he wants to see more equality um, and more equity. So um, yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, that that came across to me as well when I read the paper. Um, and then I, I actually was fortunate enough, I was able to spend nearly an hour with Stuart a couple of weeks ago prepping everything. And at the end of it, I thought, I need to take back some of my questions and certainly tone them down <laughs> because I'm not speaking to the paper, I'm speaking to the person. I think what comes across from him is, is this um, approach that I think resonates with so many people in Scotland is this, we've got to be careful, we've not got to go too fast and we've got to always think about what other people can think about us because we're a small country that could tip on other people's opinions and um, we cannot we cannot deny that and, and certainly I think we should be doing things a lot differently quicker than Stuart. I think we should be moving away from the Sustainable Growth Commission, but as a, as, a, as I think they could have been written by the same people 
um, on the same typewriter. Uh, you know, so I definitely think there's a, another another way that we can go, but I think it's crucial that we got um, Stuart's uh, opinion and his thoughts on that. I hope everyone enjoyed that interview. But yeah, he was he was great, and I I think we definitely need to have him on again later in the year. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, bye for now. Thanks for joining us, everyone, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye bye. Thank you.